Good morning. We are going to start a new series, a uh, sermon series on the book of Ruth, which is found in the Old Testament, and uh, I thought it would be a good, uh, a good book for us to go through and reflect on as it addresses um, you know, themes of, of love and repentance and lament and compassion and the sovereignty of God. And, uh, and so we're going to be going through this book over the next couple of months. Um, but uh, it's uh, Steve Hunter, as he preached last week, he mentioned it, uh, that along with Esther, it's, uh, it's, it's a unique book because it's one of two books in the whole Bible that are named after women. But even more than that, Ruth um, is, uh, it gives us a, a more distinctly um, female perspective um, as the, the main characters in the book of Ruth are women. They drive most of the story. They drive most of the dialogue. Um, and, and so it's, it's unique in that sense. Uh, it, it, very possibly, we don't know who the author of the book of Ruth was, but it's very possible that it was a woman um, or that it was at, very least, uh, at the very least influenced by a woman or women. And so it gives us a, a uniquely a distinctive uh, woman's perspective on things. Um, and so it's, it's helpful in that sense. Um, as we look at this book, it begins with this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. This is where, when, where the book is set, the, the time uh, that the book is set in, in Israel. Um, that refers to this time uh, that the book of Judges covers. But it's this time after the Israelites have left Egypt and entered the promised land. They've, they've entered and settled in Canaan. And before, they've had a king, a, a, a human king, to, to rule over them. Uh, there's this time where there's this uh, just great cycles of, of sinfulness and rebellion against God. And then, and then uh, judgment and repentance and, and God raises up a judge to save them. But as you read through the book of Judges, it, things kind of get progressively worse. And you see more and more lawlessness, more and more sinfulness. It's a very precarious time to live in Israel. So, so that's what, what the, the setting is in the days when the judges rule. At the very end of the book of Judges, actually several times in the book of Judges, it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, so that kind of described the time that this book is set. And uh, basically um, it, it, it tells the story of this, uh, even though the book is named Ruth, I would argue that the main character of the book is not even Ruth, it's actually Naomi. The book begins with a Naomi and it ends with Naomi, although Ruth plays a major role here. Um, and so, so very much the book is about Naomi and, and a, a woman who goes through a great deal of heartache and pain and suffering, but upon whom God pours out his grace. So this morning we're going to read through the whole first chapter of Ruth. There's only four chapters. Um, we're going to read through the whole first chapter, but we're going to spend um, this week, next week, maybe even the, the following week on the first chapter. So I'm not going to cover the whole first chapter. I'm going to cover some, some different things from the first chapter. But uh, listen to God's word as I read. Um, we're going to read Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. 
and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter, for, bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, they, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we look at this book, as we look at this chapter that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would reveal your truth to us, that we would understand our need for you, that we would understand our place in your story, that we would understand your faithfulness and, and grace, and that you would build us up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can remember the sound like it was yesterday. Whoop! Whoop, whoop. It was a sound that a video game made that I played when I was a kid. It was like my favorite video game in the world. It was a game called River Raider on the Atari 2600, if any of you guys remember that. That was, you know, one of the first ones after, that came out after, you know, the only thing we had before that was Pong. So it was a huge step up from that. But nowadays, compared to, compared to video games nowadays, it was like, you know, pretty sad. But I loved it. I loved it. It was basically, you, you were looking down upon this fighter plane, 
and you were controlling the fighter plane with your little joystick, and uh, you had to kind of dodge around all sorts of obstacles as you flew over this river, and you had to shoot and and destroy all of these enemy warships. Um, But in addition to trying to shoot as many things as possible, um, you had a fuel tank that was constantly running emptier and emptier. And so eventually, when it got low enough, the alarm would sound, whoop, whoop, whoop. And that sound, you know, created panic. You know, you, you, you're like, if I don't find some place to fuel up soon, if I don't find, like, the fuel bar to, to fly over, then I'm going to completely be empty, and I'm going to crash and die. And, uh, and so the game, as much as it was a game about trying to shoot things, it was very much a game about uh, just kind of a frenzied attempt to always find fuel to fill up when you were running emptier and emptier. In some ways, I, I think that's a picture of all of our lives. We're constantly battling the possibility of emptiness. We're constantly having to react to the loss of things that leave us with empty hands and empty hearts. And much of life becomes a frenzied attempt to fill ourselves up with stuff, to to replace those things or to make up for those losses. Emptiness is something to be avoided for us, you know, or it's something to be immediately solved. We struggle to, to deal with emptiness and the, and the pain and of, of loss in our lives. One of the themes of the book of Ruth is this idea of emptiness and fullness. The first chapter is a tragic description, just in these first five verses, a tragic description of the emptying of Naomi's life. One loss after another loss after another loss after another loss. And then at the end of the, of the chapter, in verse 21, she says this. What she's, as she comes back to Bethlehem and the, and the women recognize her, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. What I want to do this morning, because I think the, the first chapter of Ruth demands that we do this, Um, is it it forces us to recognize that emptiness and loss and the pain that goes with it is not something to be ignored in life. It's not something to be dismissed. It's not something to to just, you know, be avoided. Um, It's not even something to to always look for the immediate solution, but it's something that we need to uh, consider as significant in our lives. I kind of mentioned this a little bit on Easter morning. Um, but, but the pain of life, the suffering, the, the, the continually uh, moments where we are being poured out and emptied because of losses, um, it's something that is significant and that God wants us to pay attention to. And so I, I want to just kind of focus on two things. One, we, we are invited by Ruth chapter 1 to, uh, to, to notice and pay attention to the pain of emptiness. And secondly... I think we're, we're encouraged to recognize the potential of emptiness, okay? So we're going to look at the pain of emptiness and the potential of emptiness. So first of all, um, one thing that you do is, is you start reading this. The very first readers of this book, as you start reading this book, 
It would have just been one thing after another just slamming into you as you, as you realize what Naomi is, is going through and losing, the, the pain and the suffering that she's experiencing just in these first five verses. In the space of five verses, Naomi loses so much. It's just one tragedy after another. The, big, the beginning of the book reminds us, as I said before, that this time in Israel was a precarious time. It was a time where, where there wasn't a whole lot of security. There wasn't a whole lot of safety here. But as they live in this you know, precarious time as it is, um, they encounter a famine. Uh, the fields are empty. The crops where they were growing, it is all empty. Their stomachs are empty. And because of this emptiness, Elimelech and his family feel that they are forced to leave Canaan, to leave the land that God had promised them and to go into this neighboring, neighboring country of Moab. Now, Moab has long been a, a source of, of pain and, and struggle for Israel. It's been a, Moab has been a thorn in Israel's side for many, many years. When they, were, when they were traveling from Egypt to go into Canaan, one of the things that the king of Moab did was, uh, if, if you're familiar, familiar with the story, is he, he basically hired a prophet, Balaam, to, to, so that he could curse the Israelites. He just wanted bad to come upon the Israelite nation. Um, and, and I believe in the book of Judges also the, there's a point when, when a lot of the men of Israel marry uh, women from Moab and these women lure them away from God. And, and so Moab isn't, isn't kind, of, kind of this neutral territory, you know, it, it's an enemy. And so for, for them to move to Moab is to go from kind of the, uh, the frying pan into the fire for Elimelech and his family. Um, you know, if Israel was a place of instability, uh, Moab was a place where they were seen as enemies. And so there was a real loss of, of, of the little security they had, and there was a loss of their home as they moved away, right? As they moved away from their home that they lived in, they, they, they experienced a little bit of an emptying in that sense. But, but that's not where it stops. You know, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malan and Killian, move to Moab. And it says they remained there. We don't know how long it is, but uh, there's this indefinite period of time. It seems to be, you know, a decent amount of time. And, and then in verse 3, something else, another, another loss slams into Naomi. It says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. So they moved into this foreign land where they don't have a whole lot of security and safety just to find food. They're foreigners, they're aliens, they're outcasts. And then Naomi's husband dies and she's left as a widow with these two sons. And, and, and suddenly, you know, her, her life takes a turn for the worse. For, uh, in, in those days especially, you know, women's lives depended on men in a real way. So that when, when a woman lost her husband, a widow would be extremely vulnerable. And her life would be in danger. And so she's left there with her two sons, without her husband. And these sons then took Moabite wives. Um, there's not a great track, track record of that in the Bible. But these men, because I, this, this, this represented maybe just a small sliver of hope. Because again, in, in those days... A person's identity, a person's value was wrapped up in their children and their grandchildren. And so for Naomi's hope 
and sense of security and happiness for the future. It rested on her sons and whether they could have children who would then take care of them in there as they got older and older. And so they marry these Moabite wives, one Orpah, the other Ruth, and then this other kind of, you know, um, just innocent line, it says they lived there for about 10 years. Actually, that line carries a great deal of meaning because apparently these, her sons are married to these women for 10 years and they don't have kids yet. They don't have kids. So, so not only has, has uh, Naomi lost her husband, but now as she thinks about the hopes of her future and, and the potential for grandkids, there's empty wombs now, empty cradles. And Naomi's got to be wondering, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? And then it gets even worse in verse 5. And then both of her sons, Malin and Killian, died. And she's left, a widow, alone, with no sons, and no hope for the future. And the original readers would be reading this, and they would have, they would have just been just like shocked, crushed, just being like, ah, oh, the pain that Naomi is having to endure. Her losses are so complete and extensive that as you get to the end of the, at the end of the passage, right, when she comes back to Bethlehem and the other women notice her and recognize her, what does she say to them? She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Her losses are so complete, so extensive. If you come back to verse 5, when it describes her, her situation, it says, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It doesn't even call her by name anymore. It seems to be she's been emptied of her identity. Who am I? Who am I anymore? I have nothing. I have nothing. Her life has been completely emptied. She is completely vulnerable. She has no hope. And she is in pain. And as we read this, I think that we are encouraged. The reason I wanted to spend so much time on, on focusing on how much she lost, I think we need to realize how this, uh, the writer of Ruth is inviting us to see the pain that Naomi is dealing with and to have compassion for her, to hurt with her, to do what Ruth and Orpah do. In verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept. That's it. I think one of the things that, that, that we are encouraged to do as you read through scripture, that we are encouraged to do as Christians, as human beings, is to recognize that this world is profoundly broken. And there is a great deal of pain. And there is a great deal of loss. All of us have experienced it, are experiencing it, will experience it. And, and the, uh, the temptation for us is to just ignore it, to, to just kind of like act like everything's fine. Or to just like in a frenzied attempt, you know, live out a frenzied attempt to try to solve our problems. But, but I think there, there's a right place for us to just lament. To say this, this world isn't the way it should be. My life isn't the way that it should be. To reflect on my life and the things that are broken in it. You know, relationships that I've lost. Maybe family members that I love that I've lost even this past year. Family members, the, 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 the sense of, of, of connection that I've lost with people this last year. 
This is something for us to grieve about, to weep about, to spend time just saying this isn't right. You know, the, the division of our life, the way that we, we thought it would turn out, the dreams that we had, a lot of us, you know, those, those things have been lost to us, to many of us. And your life is not what you had planned. And it's painful to think about that. I think, I think Ruth, this, this chapter encourages us to say, no, it's not right, and to weep, to acknowledge it, and to lament about it, to, to, be, to be able to lament about the brokenness and the loss and the emptiness of our own lives, and also to be quick to enter into the loss and emptiness of the people around us. As Christians, we should be the first people who are able to enter into the pain of people around us, to empathize with them, to weep with them. And yet a lot of the time, we are like, no, nah, I don't want to deal with that. That's too awkward. That's too uncomfortable. There, there's, a, there's a great scene from the, the, the TV show Seinfeld uh, where, uh, where Jerry is sitting down with his best friend George. And, and, uh, and I forget exactly what happened, but Jer- Jerry's just encouraging George to kind of pour out his heart to him, you know, all of his struggles, all of the, the things that he's, he's hurting about. And, and so George finally opens up and just tells him everything. That's, that's just like weighing on his heart and all of, the, all of his deepest, darkest secrets. And there's this kind of montage of like time passing as George talks and talks and talks and talks. And at the beginning of the conversation, George, Jerry is like, you know, all like, come on, George, tell me, tell me what's bothering you, you know? And then by the end, after George is done, it pans back to Jerry. And Jerry just looks like this. Good luck with all that. You know, that's, that's I think a lot of us have that kind of attitude. Or... A lot of us have this attitude where, where we see someone struggling and hurting and going through pain, and we are immediately quick to judge them and to think about, you know, all the reasons they had it coming. You know, you could easily look at Naomi and Elimelech and their family and think about, well, you know, they have all this heartache. Naomi experienced all this heartache, but they, you know, they should have never moved to Moab. They should have trusted God. She shouldn't have let her sons marry Moabite women, you know? Like, it, we, can, we can always come up with all these reasons to be like, oh, Naomi deserved it. The text doesn't do that at all. And we are just left to, to, to weep with, with Naomi. I mean, I think we, we do that often. I mean, especially, like, in light of, of recent events, especially, you know, in light of, of, of the, the racial injustice and issues that are going on in our country. You know, another black man has been shot. Dante Wright. And so many of us are quick to say why he wasn't doing what he was supposed to, rather than entering into the pain of those this death impacts and weeping. So I think we need to, we need to acknowledge the pain of the brokenness of this world, of the emptiness that, that so many of us, all of us, have to deal with. We need to weep over the stuff that's wrong in our own lives. We need to weep with those who are hurting and have lost things themselves. What kind of pain have you had to endure? What, what kind of losses have you experienced? Are you experiencing right now? Yeah, have you, have you lost a person that has meant something to you? Have you lost connection with a person, a friend, a family member? Have you lost a dream that you had for your life? Have you, have you lost a sense of security? What have you lost? Have you lost your health? 
it's important for us to, to recognize our losses and to sit with them and to lament. But even as we sit with the pain, I think we're also encouraged to see the potential of emptiness. As we, as we see all of this pain that Naomi is dealing with, and we hear Naomi cry at the end of chapter one, I went away full, and now I've come back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. It, it's crucial to realize, crucial to realize, this isn't the end of the story. This is chapter one. This is just the beginning. If you're reading this for the first time, um, it, it would have been brutal to see how it begins, but you would have known that there's more to, more to the story that's to come, that there's more to read. There's potential here. I mean, many of, uh, of life's great stories begin with tragedy, with loss, with emptiness. You've you seen a Disney movie lately? I mean, pretty much every Disney movie I've ever seen begins with somebody dying, with a parent dying. I don't know what's the, what the deal is with that. You know, like I take my kids to see a movie and all of a sudden somebody's dead in the first five minutes. It's brutal, but, but, it's, but it's absolutely true. I, mean, I was just watching Up with our little kids a couple weeks ago. And, you know, in the first, first five, ten minutes, you know, it tells the story of this, of this little kid, Carl Fredrickson. He's so cute. And then, you know, he, he, he builds this relationship with this, this, you know, vivacious little girl named Ellie. And then they, they, they get older and older, and they, they have all these adventures together. And then they, they you know, they come to realize that, that she's his true love. And they get married, and then it starts showing kind of a montage of the beginning of their lives together as they build their home together, and they make all these plans and dreams together. And then the next thing you know, she's in a hospital bed. And he's sitting at her side. And next thing you know, the house is empty, and he's lost her. This is the first 10 minutes of the movie, and I'm bawling. But we know that there's more of the movie to come. I mean, the only reason I don't turn it off right then is because I know that there's a promise of something good, something beautiful, something satisfying if I will just keep watching in the midst of Carl's heartache and emptiness. This is one way to look at emptiness. Emptiness is, is sad and it's painful. Um, it's something that we don't want to wish on ourselves or anyone else, but emptiness is also something that is waiting to be filled. You cannot fill something that isn't empty. Emptiness is, is, it has great potential. Whenever you encounter emptiness in the Bible, frequently when you encounter emptiness in the Bible, it's a clue that God's about to do something. You know, you look at here, there's a famine in the land. The fields are empty. Remember, there's another moment of famine back in Genesis. At the end of Genesis, there's a famine in the land after Joseph is in Egypt. It forces the brothers to go to Egypt and be reconciled with Joseph and, and for Joseph to save the family and be reunited with his brothers and his father. The famine was a clue that God was about to do something. You know, I think of, of moments of drought in the Bible. There's this, there's this epic drought, empty skies in 1 Kings, and that, that kind of culminates in 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where Elijah, God's prophet, kind of has this duel with the prophets of Baal. Whoever answers by fire is true, the true living God, and God pours out his fire 
upon the altar that Elijah builds and, and, and all, of, all of the prophets of Baal are, are just kind of completely um, defeated. And then God causes the skies to open and pour down. And it, it, it all begins with this, this setting of, of emptiness, lack of rain. When, whenever you see a woman in the Bible who is unable to have children, who has an empty womb, it is a sign. It is a clue that God is going to do something. Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, way past her age to be able to have kids, God promises, comes to them, promises, you're going to have a child. And she has Isaac, the child of the promise. Hannah, who is unable to have kids and prays to God, and she gives birth to Samuel, one of the great prophets of Israel. Later in the New Testament, you have Elizabeth, again, who is too old to have kids, but, but then God gives them the child, John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the chosen one, the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus. All of these moments of emptiness, they're clues that God is about to do something or that he is doing something. The moment of greatest emptiness in all of scripture, in all of history, is when Jesus hung on the cross and he emptied himself of his own life. I mean, what more tragic moment is there than the Son of God hanging on a cross and being emptied? And yet it's, it's Jesus' emptiness on the cross, his death on the cross, that is when God accomplishes the most significant, most powerful thing to revolutionize all of history and our lives. It's, it's, it's Jesus' emptiness on the cross that, that provides a way for the curtain to be torn in two, for us to enter the, the presence of God and experience his love for us. It's, it's all the result of Jesus' emptiness. It's because of Jesus' emptiness on the cross that we can, uh, as we've received what he has done, that we can know that God is our God, that he's on our side, that he loves us, that he's working all things for our good. It's because of Jesus' emptiness on the cross that we can, as God's children, look at the pain of life and the emptiness of life as having potential because we know that God is with us and working now or going to work to fill us. So that's what I think just these two simple things this passage encourages us to do. We're going to return to this passage later next week, but, uh, but I think it, it encourages us to, to recognize, lean into the pain of life, the emptiness of our own lives, the emptiness of those around us, to weep about it, to lament about it, to spend time doing that, not to just ignore it, um, but also to recognize that there is potential in the midst of our tears, there is potential in the midst of our pain, and that there is potential in the midst of feeling like we have nothing. Empty hands, empty hearts. There is, we, we are in no greater position to, to experience the work of God at that moment. We're gonna introduce a new song. Um, Tyler's already sung it at the beginning of the, the, beginning of the service. We're gonna sing it again in a few minutes. Um, and, and we're gonna sing it over and over again as we go through this book of Ruth, uh, because I think it's, it's very much tied to some of the themes in the book of Ruth, but uh, especially this one. It's, it's an old hymn, and, it's, and we're going to sing it to a new melody, and, and it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's one of my all-time favorite hymns, definitely top three of my favorite hymns. 
Um, but it's written by a guy named William, William Cooper who lived in the 1700s. He was a poet. And he was a man who, who was very well acquainted with loss and emptiness and suffering and pain. When he was six years old, his mother died giving birth to his little brother. And that really had an impact on him for the rest of his life. But there were other moments in his life where he got close to people and they died as well. Um, but much of his lo- adult life was spent dealing with mental illness. Um, specifically, he, he, he struggled with depression. Uh, there, was, there was one point when he was, he was struggling so deeply that he was admitted to an insane asylum. But it was in that insane asylum that he actually became a Christian, that he came to meet Jesus. Because he just read a couple verses from the Bible. That didn't solve his problems, though. He continued feeling empty in his life, and, and st- he continued struggling with depression for, for his entire life, even to the point where he, he, several times he attempted to commit suicide. Um, at, at one point later in his life, he, gave, he, came, he became good friends with John Newton, who, who wrote Amazing Grace. And together, they, they actually, uh, John, John Newton compiled a hymnal with, with some of uh, William Cooper's poems and hymns. And this is found in that, that hymnal. Um, but what's significant about this, this hymn is that he actually wrote this hymn right around the time, right around one of those times that he actually tried to kill himself. When, it was, when he was feeling the, the, the clouds of darkness weighing down on him more heavily than, than he'd ever felt them before. And, and yet he wrote these words. And, and let me just read a few of the words for you that we're going to sing over and over again. It says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. I I cannot get away from the the truth that is communicated in those lines. You know, we, we look at the clouds of suffering and pain and loss that continually come, come over us in our lives. And, and we tend to dread them. But, but Cooper reminds us in his hymn that these clouds that we so much dread are actually, there's great potential there because they are, they're actually swelling with the mercy of God and ready to break open and pour out his blessing upon us, even when we feel most empty, when we feel the greatest pain. I can only uh, take comfort from this, though, if I believe that God is my king. You can only take comfort from this if you believe that God is your king. I just want to finish with this. This, this book begins by setting it in the time of Judges, right? When there's no king in Israel. The, the very last line of the book of Judges says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone was, did, did what was right in their own eyes. And now we have the beginning of Ruth that is set in that circumstance. And what does it say? Verse two, the name of this man, the, about the, the, it's about to start a story about this man and his wife. The name of the man is Elimelech. You know what Elimelech means? My God is king. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, this time, it's a story set in the time when there was no king. We have this character named My God is King, and immediately he's leaving, going to Moab, away from the land where his God, who is king, gave to him. 
And I think it encourages us, it urges us to ask this question for ourselves. Is God your king? Is God my king? Do I believe that he is my king? Do I believe that he loves me? Do I believe he has plans to bless me? Do I believe that even in the midst of the emptiness and loss that I experience in life, that I've experienced this past year, that I've experienced even this past week, that the clouds that I dread are big with mercy and are going to break with blessings on my head? Do I believe it because my God is my king? Am I going to trust him for his grace? Am I going to believe? Is God my king? Is he your king? I encourage you to answer that question today in the midst of your hurt and pain. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us, uh, that you would convict us of the ways that we are driven by a desire to solve our losses, to solve our emptiness. Father, we pray that you would help us to acknowledge them, to sit in them, to, to re- recognize the reality of this fact, the fact that this world is so broken. But then at the same time, through our tears, to fix our eyes on you, our king, our good king, our merciful king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's word, let's take a moment to confess our sin together. With the prayer that's printed in your order of worship, it's also going to be up on the screen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, eternal God over all, I have turned away from you and put my hope in the things of this world. Instead of trusting in you, I have trusted in these other things to give me happiness, significance, and security. Please forgive me. Help me to know that all earthly things are shadows, but that you are substance. All earthly things are quicksand, but you are a mountain. All earthly things are shifting, but you are an anchor. All earthly things are ignorance, but you are wisdom. In your grace, take away my mourning and give me music. Still my sighs and fill my mouth with a song. Take away my sorrow and give me the joy of being a Christian. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we now uh, take a moment to confess our sin to you in the uh, silence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen to Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's continue to worship our God.